I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Realm presents Dark Heights Season 2, Episode 10. Marjot, begin journal entry. The elevator descended. Its antique wire cage box frame rattled as it traveled on its cables. Inside, above the folding doors, the minute hand of the Art Deco half-moon floor dial was moving to the left from the zero at the top, down to minus one. The moment the hand touched the negative number, a bell clapped, clarion loud in the confined space. I could not recall what rooms or hallways were contained in the basements and sub-basements of the Mercury Thrice Hotel. Of course, the Mercury Thrice had grown considerably since the last time I was here. It wasn't wise to think on the past, not in this moment. A grave danger to me, anything that drew my attention away from life, from being alive. Blood flowing in my veins, my mind, its own strength, its own freedom. The shadows were waiting for me. Another ring of the bell, minus two. I felt them now, deeper than this. These were not ordinary shadows. They had been gathering down here for some time. Their malice had intensified. It was as if these lower levels of the hotel were a natural hollow in the shape of the world, a tidal pool in the river between life 
and death. All metaphors. But the anger and the pain and the host of shadows was real. I felt their hate. I felt them rushing toward me. The bell rang out for a minus three, and the elevator shuddered to a sudden stop. The arm of the dial was furthest left, horizontal. At the bottom, then. I gripped the handle of the folding door and pulled it back, flung the cage's accordion gate wide open, stepped out into a pitch-black hallway. The globe of my thomosphere burst into light around me, coruscating red, its surface alive with arcane sigils and runes that swirled in the fire. This flowering of fire, the heat of it on my face. Jenny and Karen's house on Mayfair Street, burning down. All at once, from all sides at once, sensing my stray thoughts as a hesitation. The shadows came at me, the rage-bent howl of them, a sound that flayed skin from bone. I opened my excorations, the ribbons of light shed scarlet sparks, cutting white-hot against the dark. But first, let me explain how I came to be there. Don't worry, little wing. I'll come back to what happened next. Don't you worry about me. You will remember that I told Will Severand I knew of a place. He'd been worried that the Watchers would always be able to find Lina, being connected to her in the way that all of them are connected, each to the other. The Mercury Thrice Hotel does not exist in our world. Rather, it exists in its own. From time to time, it comes to touch this world, and there are those who leave it and those who enter. And if you know how to call it, so that it turns one of its corners to touch one of the corners of the city in which you stand, the Mercury Thrice can be summoned, and its doors will open for you. Except there was a problem. I wasn't welcome there. At the apartment in Pasadena, the Chantresses had been waiting for me to return from my meeting with Will. I told them what I'd talked about with the Child of the Watchers, I did not tell them about my conversation with Madero. In fact, Dalalay was regarding me somewhat archly as I ended my summation without having mentioned him. Doubtless, she knew. Eleanor asked the pertinent question. What actually is this place that you know of where Lena can be free of the Watchers? I really hope you're not talking about here, the Mercury Thrice Hotel. Nomi actually whistled. That's a myth, isn't it? She looked at Eleanor and Dalalay. Isn't it? Dalalay laughed. Apparently not. I haven't suddenly lost my mind. It's a real place, in a manner of speaking. Eleanor sighed. Cryptic murder wizards suck. Nomi was excited. You know how to find it? Of course. I helped to create it. Eleanor rolled her eyes. Nomi said, That's so cool. Dalalay yawned. I think someone should come with me. Nomi's hand shot up. Me? Oh, me? Eleanor said, Why? The hotel's maitress will be less likely to have me beaten to death if at least one of you is there, looking like you're on my side. Nomi's hand went down slowly. Count me out of it, 
Eleanor said. I'll go. Nomi was nodding. I'll still go. Delalay went over to her. Be careful. You know me. Yes, and I worry. This is dangerous now. Everything we do creates a consequence. Every decision we make tilts the balance. We aren't safe anymore. What we're doing, opposing the Watchers like this, we're risking our lives now. With Dalalay's warning in mind, Nomi and I left the apartment. She insisted on driving us in the roadster. Why are you wearing that hat? And where are we going exactly? Hollywood. Feel like telling me what we're actually doing? I like Nomi. Her adventurous spirit was infectious. We need an old hotel. The Mercury Thrice will briefly intersect with our reality, if I call it. But it's much easier to do in a place that's similar, where there are echoes. There's a lot of old hotels around. I know. Earlier, an image came into my mind suddenly. A picture of Marilyn Monroe in a white bathing suit, lounging at the swimming pool of the Hollywood Roosevelt. I don't think it's a coincidence. The Mercury Thrice has always sent glimmers of itself into my awareness. After all, I was one of the five Archimages who established it. So I think we'd better follow that up. We struggled to find parking anywhere near Hollywood Boulevard, which made me doubt my decision for more than a moment. There were an astounding number of tourists along the Walk of Fame outside of Grumman's Chinese Theater up and down the street. Yet soon enough, we found our way into the main lobby of the Roosevelt. I went to the front desk, looking for something specific, something difficult to obtain these days. Finally, I had to ask the desk clerk, Matches? Do you have a book of matches? They did. Nomi followed me closely as I went back outside. I tore out all the matches from the book, except for one. Then I lit this last match. I looked through the flame of it at the front doors of the Roosevelt. Those doors now opened into another world. Now, right now. Nomi didn't move fast enough. I grabbed her hand and pulled her with me, lunging. The both of us slammed through the doors. Then we found ourselves inside the Mercury Thrice. Its lobby was unchanged since 1929, a pinnacle of Art Nouveau elegance and grandeur. Polished brass railings at the front desk, at the lobby bar to our right, the plasterwork of the vaulted ceiling swooping in ornate scallops. There were deep plush armchairs and glass coffee tables arrayed to our left. I remembered sitting there, once upon a time, reading newspapers from all over the world attached to wooden dowels, pouring steamed milk into narrow glasses of rich, strong coffee, served on gilded silver trays. I never thought you'd dare to strike that match. My head turned at the sound of the voice. La doyenne. I took on Penpon off and bowed. Beside me, Nomi copied my bow, awkwardly. La Doyen moved as if floating across the black and white marble floor tiles, coming forward into the light that shone through the tall glass doors of the entrance. Behind her, two of her dedicated Katha Wu monks, 
followed silently. They wore simple light brown robes cinched at the waist with rope. Their heads were shorn to the scalp except for a queue of hair bound at the back. Then I realized that La Doyenne had become a man. In 1929, she had been a fixture in the Shanghai underworld and the Shanghai nightlife, as famous for her ruthlessly straight-cut Cheng Sam dresses as she was for being ruthless in business affairs. It was many decades later. La Doyenne had not aged at all. They had changed their gender, yet everything else was the same. Their black hair was piled high, pinned with jade and silver. Their Cheongsam dress with its aquamarine and sunflower yellow abstract pattern was as beautiful as any dress I'd seen them wear. They said, La Diane, I've not been called that in a long time. How unsurprising that you condescend to use the colonial appellation. Your order was always the first true colonizer. The European nations emulated your hidden power as they brought oppression and exploitation to the four corners of the earth. I bowed my head to them as low as I could. I apologize sincerely. It was a mistake, falling into old habits. I should have called you Sorcerer Emperor, as is proper for you, Li Fengyang. Sorcerer Empress if you're insisting on propriety. I was a woman when I ruled from Linan. However, you may plainly and simply call me Li. Despite everything, we are friends still. Are we not? I was hoping so. And who is your companion? I said, This is Nomi. Nomi said, Nomi Jones. She's a chantress. Then she'll understand why there is unfinished business between us, Major. The last time you left, you and your brother Archimages attempted to destroy this place soon after. Nomi punched me in the shoulder. I should have known. I said to Nomi, it was complicated. And to Lee, I've always regretted my part in what happened. Enough to make amends. I caught the tone in their voice. There's a reason you let me come back. There is. And there's a reason I came. Then we have the beginnings of an agreement. Let the negotiations commence. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. It didn't take long for Lee to come to an arrangement with me. Afterwards, Nomi and I were told we were free to explore the hotel. She was properly in awe of the place. I showed her the grand ballroom, the hotel restaurant, the cinema theater. All of it held memories for me. The 1920s. In many ways, it was a high age for the Archimagian Order. The Watchers had revealed themselves to us in 1913. Across the world, we mobilized for war. We felt we were invulnerable, as yet untested against our adversary. All of it would change soon, but until then, our confidence was unshaken. One particular city in the world had become a center point of magical energies, a place of chaotic, ever-shifting politics, an open city where free enterprise was inseparable from murderous criminal moxie. Shanghai. It was my very first assignment in the order. Newly fledged, I was one of the Archimages sent to Shanghai in 1929 in order to establish an Archimagian exestate in the city. We controlled several of these in the world, most notably our citadel at the Sorbonne in Paris. An exestate was a pocket reality, a sliver of space adjacent to the world, but discreet from the rest of it. These exestates were our refuges, our oases, our hidden places of power. My brothers and I completed the work required. We transformed the Mercury Thrice Hotel into an exestate, and almost immediately after, we lost control of it. Walking next to me, Nomi finally brought up the subject of what Lee and I had discussed. You're going to do what Lee asked you to do? Yes. You're going to dispel the shadows from the lower levels? I don't think I have much choice. Lee agreed that we can bring Lena and Tess here if I do this for her. For him. Them. I mean. At first I'd said no to Lee, but they'd been adamant about it. The lower levels of the hotel had become dangerous, unusable, unstable. Shadows were massing there. It was a sign that the hotel's magical energies were fraying at the edges to allow such access from outside the exostate, for these shadows to have been able to gather unchecked. I think the hotel itself was leading us into its heart as we walked the halls. There were some doors that were locked, others standing open. 
The lamps down certain corridors came on ahead of us, while others remained darkened. There were only a handful of guests at the hotel. Nomi and I saw a gentleman in a top hat in a suit that was likely tailored in the 19th century, sitting alone in the restaurant. The cinema was showing something silent, starring Mary Pickford, and there were only two or three patrons in the auditorium. At the end of the 20s, despite the market crash in America, this place had been alive with activity. Every room sold out, a big band playing in the ballroom every night, with Joe and Nellie Farron, the exhibition dancers. I suppose the clientele had changed when we removed this place from reality. Soon Nomi and I came to a cloistered space at the center of the Mercury Thrice. It was a courtyard open to the sky. There were trees that grew at the center of circular flagstone paths. Stone benches and tables were arrayed throughout. I recalled Master Nakamura's visit in 1929. He'd come to measure our progress as we worked to establish the Ex-Estate in Shanghai. We had played a game of chess at one of the stone tables. It had lasted an afternoon, then an evening, into the night and morning had dawned before the last move was played. Though I lost the game, I remember feeling proud to have challenged Nakamura in this way, and I believe his estimation of me rose in that moment. Nomi seated herself at the very same chess table. There were no pieces now on the black and white squares. She said, Too bad we can't play. I'm pretty good. Yes, too bad. If you're going to go down into some basement to mess around with the spirits of the dead, you're going to need my help. I'm not sure I want to risk something like that. Nomi went on, undeterred. It's called anchoring. We do it for each other all the time. You saw us doing it for Eleanor when she was scrying Lena. My strength goes into your workings. Basically, it's still all you, but you've got a boost from me, and I'm like a reserve tank of power to draw from, too. I don't want to do this at all. Because it's dangerous? It is, but no, that's not it. Being that close to shadows, it will expose me to their side of life and death. There are my own beloved on that side. I don't know what would happen if one of them came to me. All the more reason for me to anchor. I can pull you back. I nodded. It would seem to be a sensible thing to do then. We went to find Lee. They were seated at the lobby bar, sipping a Singapore sling. One of the Qatar Wood was their bartender. It was an odd sight. Grimly silent monk, dressed in medieval Chinese mendicant robes, cleaning a cocktail glass with a checkered bar towel. Lee had agreed that Nomi could make herself comfortable in a room. She needed a place to meditate, undisturbed. This work of anchoring would take her outside of herself, and any interruption from her environment could possibly break the connection. In the room, Nomi said, I'll need... Something of yours. I removed Unpenpan and gave it to her. Your weird hat works. When she took it from me, 
She looked down at it, sharply, then up at me. This was enchanted. That's even better. The power I'd worked into it is gone now. What was it? Concealment. The enchantment changed my appearance. While I was wearing it, everyone who interacted with me would see me as someone different. Never myself. Very cool. I realized that all of the things I'd used to hide from the Watchers for these last many years were no longer mine or no longer held their power. Unpenpon, Crybaby, my deck of cards, Erased, and Tatai. What had become of my golem? In the rush of events, I hadn't considered it. But Tatai was still out in the world somewhere, probably not far from Park Heights. It was impossible to say if its unnatural hunger would be stronger than its desire to learn, to find acceptance, to become human. Nomi watched me as I was lost in thought. I think those days of running and hiding have come to an end. We're not ready for another war with the Watchers. It's coming, though, isn't it? I thought it was all that I wanted. The last war. To take them all on. To take some of them with me at the end. Because I was tired. I'd given up. War was my death wish. War is redemption's daydream. Then... Only a few hours later, in the basement hallway of the Mercury Thrice, surrounded by shadows, my excoriations unfurled their fire. With Nomi's strength added to mine, I felt her presence in the magic, a thrilling sense of access to greater power. I worked with a masterful ease and grace in the flow of magic. Moving forward, I pointed at each black shape as it bore down upon me. The excoriations leapt out from the thomosphere like solar flares shooting out from the surface of the sun. The shadows were the dead, yet they retained volition of a kind. There was a madness in them that came from never letting go of the living, never being able to separate. Over time, the pain and torture of no longer being alive had turned them into monstrous things, twisted shapes, beings of rage. An Archimagean excoriation touched the black substance of them. They were obliterated forever. I snuffed them out. The fire of magic burned them out, one by one, those that fell upon the surface of the thomosphere, reaching with ragged claws to rend my flesh, were incinerated in eruptions of lightning. They kept coming. They kept rising from below, hundreds upon hundreds. You were not among them, little wind. This had been my fear from the start. Yet all these restless dead were unknown to me, and so I destroyed them all. Then I understood, looking into the gathered mass of shadows rising up from below, that there was a deeper movement at work. There was a current in the river of them, sweeping inexorably past the hotel toward another endpoint. These dead, thronging here at the Mercury Thrice, were only a tributary. They were a side effect of what was coming. I became numb to myself as I burned the shadows out of the hotel. The excoriations branched and forked and struck each ghostly shape that loomed into my field of vision. And then it was over. 
I was alone inside my thomosphere. I broke its geometry with a thought. The moment the sphere of light and fire winked out, I fell to one knee and fell against the wall of the hallway, slumping over. It wasn't long before the Katawu found me. Nomi was with them. She knelt next to me and took my head in her hands, peering into my eyes. I breathed with difficulty, but said, I'm fine. You don't look fine. I needed to tell Lee that there was going to be a shadow flood. We had to prepare the hotel against it. Lee's sorcery, augmented with the magical discipline of the Kathar Wu, was enough to maintain the hotel's ongoing existate. But the shadow flood would break like a tidal wave against their barriers. But there was something else. I felt a pressure somewhere out in the world, reflected in myself. Will Severand had applied his Watcher's power to the card from my deck I had let him keep. It was a message. He was ready. It was time for Lina and Tess to escape from Arson. You're listening to Dark Heights Season 2. Dark Heights is a Realm production. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, and Julian Yap. Starring Dion Graham... Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Sound design, editing, mixing, and mastering by Kaylin West. Original music by Chris Miller. Music supervision by Marcus Begala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Dark Heights by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.